Welcome to the Christchurch Manchester Theology Podcast. The CCM School of Theology meets monthly on Saturday mornings at Luther King House in Manchester. For more information about the training that we offer or about our church in Manchester, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. On Saturday 25th of September, Andy Wisdom taught two sessions at Christchurch Manchester School of Theology. This is the first of those sessions where Andy took us through the book of Ephesians. Andy is currently doing a PhD in theology at Manchester University and is also a regular speaker at School of Theology. Let's take a listen to the session. Great. Thank you so much, Andy B. Um, hi, everyone. It is great to be with you this morning. Um, my name's my name's Andy. I live in Manchester. Um, until very recently, I was one of the leaders at Christchurch Manchester uh, at the Fallowfield site, the student heavy site. Um, and my wife and myself stepped down from that leadership uh, position just so that I could focus on the other thing I do, which is uh, completing a PhD um, in uh, New Testament studies. So I'm based in the Centre for Biblical Studies at the University of Manchester. Sorry, Andy, can I just inter- interrupt you? Uh, yeah. well, the final thing I forgot to mention is if you can have your camera on, that would be great. Um, if you can do that, it's just helpful for me and the speaker to know there's some people in the room. Also, if you can mute yourself, that would be fantastic as well. Um, so, yeah, just saves me having to go around like a police officer muting people. But yeah, sorry, Andy, back into it. No problem, no problem. Um, so yeah, so I, I'm, I'm finishing hopefully next year a, uh, a PhD in uh, trauma, mental health and Paul's letters. So uh, what we're looking at this morning is quite familiar territory for me, uh, although I'm used to looking for themes of uh, kind of pain and suffering and all of that kind of thing. And it's nice to be able to just look at a letter from Paul and, and uh, unpack for you this morning what it's about and what Paul is tackling, who he's writing to and what he's telling them. Uh, so I'm excited to do that this morning as we look at the letter to the Ephesians. And, and then after that, we'll be looking at the doctrine of the church as well. Uh, as Andy already said, there will be some breakout room discussions and there'll be other times where I'll ask a question and you can answer actually in the chat and we'll get sort of as many answers, uh, short answers to those questions as we can. And if at any point you want to ask me a question, uh, by all means, put it in the chat and I'll get to it when I can, or I'll try and leave a couple of times for questions uh, as well. Um, But the best thing to do is to just dive straight in. Uh, So we're going to start by having a look at Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Um, And what I'm going to do is I'm going to start by uh, just reading actually the first couple of verses uh, of Ephesians. Just bear with me one second. Because what I've done is I've left my Bible downstairs. So I'll grab it in the first break. But here's the first couple of verses of Ephesians. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, I want to start by uh, giving an intro to the letter to the Ephesians via a, a little analogy. And a few years ago, I had the privilege of visiting uh, Dubai in the Middle East. This is where my brother-in-law lives and while my wife and I were there uh, my brother-in-law was was generous enough to pay for us to go up to the top of the Burj Khalifa the tallest building 
in the world. And when you climb up that building, you look down on this massive sprawling city of skyscrapers, which is called Dubai. And the whole thing just looks strangely small. You can see cars from a great distance just sort of weaving their way around. And these huge skyscrapers, which from the ground look gigantic, look tiny from above. You get a bird's eye view of this huge city. And actually, uh, the reason I, I'm telling you that this morning is because as I read Ephesians and as I've been studying Ephesians for the last few years, I really see this letter as a bird's eye view of Paul's theology and teaching. I think sometimes some of the big concepts in Paul's letters that he spends uh, what we have as chapters and chapters unpacking can feel a bit like massive skyscrapers. They are hard to get hold of. They're hard to get our heads around sometimes. And yet here in Ephesians, Paul doesn't dwell on one thing for too long. He gives us a bird's eye view of what it means to be a Christian. And what you'll see is that most of the subjects that Paul unpacks in Ephesians are actually unpacked in more detail elsewhere in the other letters, perhaps where it's particularly uh, relevant in that context for them to be unpacked more. And this is just one of the reasons that Ephesians is unique. Actually, uh, what if I were to tell you that those words in Ephesus that you see in the first couple of verses only appear in three out of five of the earliest manuscripts that we have of the letter to the Ephesians? Actually, for a whole bunch of reasons, another one is that there are very few, if any, personal greetings from Paul to other people in this letter. These are just some of the reasons that Ephesians looks a lot like it's a circular letter, a letter that is designed to have been written to lots of different churches that Paul had planted over the years. And if an Ephesus is just one of those. We'll talk a little bit more about that later on. But um, it, Paul, at the time of writing Ephesians, is imprisoned. That's said in verses, verses one of uh, chapters three and four. And again, we'll discuss this in a bit more detail later. But it's worth remembering already that imprisoned doesn't necessarily mean in prison. Roman imprisonment looked like lots of different things. We'll explore what this might have looked like for Paul later on. And there are two more unique things about the letter to the Ephesians. One of them is that it's couriered and probably even possibly even scribed by a guy called Tychicus. You see that in verse 21 of chapter six. And the last is its incredible similarity to the letter of Colossians. These two letters are probably written close together with one dependent upon the other. But they're really similar. No two of Paul's letters are as similar. But even though. As I've already mentioned, Ephesus probably wasn't the only location for what we call the letter to the Ephesians. It's still worth knowing a little bit about what Ephesus was like and particularly what Paul's experience was there. And this is important not only so that we get a glimpse of one of the cities where one of the churches was that Paul was writing to, but also because this was a really important city in Paul's journey. This was a place that Paul had spent several years of his ministry, as we see in the letter uh, in the book of Acts. I like to think that Ephesians was the Manchester of the Roman Empire. But if you are from a different major city, then you might want to claim that your city is the Ephesus of the UK or whatever. And at some times in history, and it's a little bit unclear, depends on which historian you read. Ephesus was the capital of the Roman province of Asia Minor. 
at different times, Pergamum and Smyrna, two churches that also appear briefly in the New Testament, were the capital as well. But Ephesus was the key, was a key trade centre of Asia Minor. So maybe it's more accurate to say that it was the Liverpool or the Southampton of Asia Minor, but it was a very important trade port, meaning it was wealthy and it was a popular place for people to live and move, particularly if they had businesses, if they were merchants or anything like that. It was a big bustling city with a population that was constantly growing. And at the time that Paul visited there was anywhere between two and 400,000 people, a big city for this time in history. It was primarily comprised of Greeks with a substantial Jewish population as well. And if uh, Ephesus had one landmark that if you were a tourist visiting Ephesus, you just had to go and see, then it was the temple of Artemis. The temple of Artemis was gigantic and the historian Strabo even considered it one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was also an important location, of course, in Christian history. Not only was this one of the churches that Paul founded and a time that Paul spent several years of his ministry, but also slightly later in history, in the fifth century AD, two major church councils were held at Ephesus discussing actually the veneration of Mary in Christianity, which was potentially born out of Ephesus's history of veneration of Artemis. And so this needed to be discussed in this massive city. And there exist extensive remains of ancient church buildings from the same period. I'm actually gonna uh, screen share a picture for you just quickly to show you that um, there's loads of excavation that's been done at Ephesus, which is in modern day Turkey. And you can see some stuff in really amazing detail. I wonder if you'll be able to see this. Um, oh, I need to allow Zoom to share my screen, apologies. Do you know what? I will share that later on because uh, this is my first time using Zoom on this laptop. So it would just be a faff. I'll share that later on. Um, <clears throat> so in Acts 19, Paul spends two and a half to three and a half years in Ephesus which is an amount of time you can't really uh, capture in one chapter of Acts or these little snippets that you get in, Paul, in Paul's letters about what his time in Ephesus was like. But what we do understand is that Paul built very important relationships there. Acts is relatively silent on Paul's first year in the city, but in the second year, a riot breaks out and Paul is forced to leave. Now I think about the timeline, that's probably either uh, in the second and a half year or the third and a half year. It's towards the end of this long period Paul spends there. And at the beginning of 2 Corinthians, Paul mentions a terrible, terrible time in uh, the province of Asia, a time that left him fearing for his life. And for that reason, along with a bunch of others that we won't go into right now, it's believed quite popularly that Paul spent some time imprisoned in Ephesus, probably during the first year he was there. And after he left, though, Paul remembered Ephesus surprisingly fondly, meaning that he had some fantastic memories there as well, spending time with the church. And in Acts 20, verse 16, we see that Paul decides to meet the Ephesian elders at Miletus instead of in Ephesus, probably because this was still, as well as it being a location Paul was very fond of, it was potentially dangerous for him to travel back there. 
Priscilla and Aquila, some of Paul's companions, are probably founding members of the church at Ephesus, as it says in Acts 18, verse 19. But by the time the letter was written, uh, assuming that it was written from Rome, and I'm getting slightly ahead of myself, they had moved on. They'd moved back to Rome, as we see in the letter of the Romans. One more point of interest about the letter to Ephesians before we get into the content is that the sentences in this letter are gigantic. I have a fascination with the Greek language. In fact, I am going to start teaching Greek next year to undergrads at the University of Manchester. So I find this stuff really interesting. But in case you do as well, it's interesting to compare Galatians to Ephesians. In uh, Ephesians, there are 2,422 words in 64 sentences. Whereas in Galatians, there are roughly the same number of words in 102 sentences. So these sentences in Ephesians are remarkably thought out. They're elaborate. Paul is making effort in the way he writes to these multiple churches. Broadly speaking, there are two key themes in Ephesus, at least there are two in Ephesians, sorry, at least two that we're going to focus on this morning. And this is a generalization. And I'm sure that if you read uh, the book of Ephesus, something else would jump out to you as a key theme. But the two that we're going to think about, which roughly divide the letter in half, are unity. What does the pretty much new Christ-loving church actually look like? And how does it function as one? And maturity. What does it look like? to be a countercultural Christian living in Paul's time. And of course, these two themes of unity and maturity are as relevant to us today as the church in the 21st century as they were to the Ephesians and all of the other recipients of this letter in the first century. And all of these themes, these uh, ideas are filtered through different articulations of how the gospel works, how it affects the church as a whole and how it affects individual Christians. Well, we're going to explore these two themes of unity and maturity in more detail as we go forward. And we're going to start, of course, with unity. I wonder if you want to uh, get your typing hands ready and, and go for the chat in answering this question. But let's get some uh, thoughts on this. What does unity in the church mean to you? I'll just give you a moment to answer that question in the chat. What does unity in the church mean to you? Brilliant. I'm going to read these out as they come in as well. A common goal to glorify God, family and community being one people, getting along with each other. People are more important than opinions. Yeah, it's great. Feel free to continue answering that question. People pulling together for each other. Churches working together, no matter the style of how they hold church. So uh, cross church unity, uh, preferring one another. And it doesn't mean uniformity it should celebrate our differences as long as we are all serving Christ together. Well, please feel free to continue answering um, that question. But that's great. So lots of uh, slightly differing but uh, equally valid thoughts on what unity means in the church. It's clear to see that this isn't a question that can be answered in one sentence. And Paul doesn't answer it in one sentence. In fact, the first three chapters in Ephesians all carry through them a theme of unity. The second half of the letter is a little bit more about maturity, but right in the middle, as we're going to see, the two themes converge quite beautifully. But we're going to start by having a look at Ephesians 1 verses 3 to 14. And uh, if you have a Bible with you, I recommend just opening it to Ephesians and following through, because we are going to have a little look at least at pretty much every part of the letter. 
But what Paul begins with here is a typical Jewish prayer, actually, which is an interesting choice, bearing in mind he's writing to a primarily Gentile audience, but he's acknowledging his own Jewish roots and perhaps addressing the Jews and the Gentiles in the church. In fact, we know from slightly later on in the letter that that's one of the key points of unity that Paul wants to reinforce. But in this amazing prayer at the beginning, Paul attributes everything in God's salvation plan to Jesus Christ. Paul presents Christ as the vessel through which God has accomplished everything for his people. Now, there are some big claims about Jesus in the New Testament. Uh, John says that uh, Jesus was there at creation, that in him, through him, all things were created. Paul says in Colossians that he is the image of the invisible God. But here, what Paul is saying is that God's entire plan for the redemption of mankind has come to its head in the person of Jesus Christ. Paul uses the word uh, dear and in, uh, dear, which means through and n, which means in so much in these first few verses to show that everything comes back to Jesus. The election of God's people, our adoption to be God's children, the gift of grace that God has given, redemption through blood, the forgiveness of sins, understanding what God's will is, the unity of all things under heaven and earth, salvation, the gift of the Holy Spirit and the inheritance that's given to all of God's children. All of these things are fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Whoever it was that said a moment ago that um, that unity in the church had something to do with all of us uh, preaching Christ together or following Christ together, worshipping Christ together, whatever your wording was. This is Paul's first point. Unity in the church will always come back to Christ. He is the one that unifies us. All of these things that I've just mentioned, this amazing list of the things Jesus fulfills, are initiated by God, fulfilled in Christ, and received by anyone who believes in him. It's a phenomenal prayer to meditate on. Actually, this is what I love about uh, the letter to the Ephesians, is that it's a really easy letter to jump into for just a short excerpt, to read a few verses and think this is just incredible. Paul is preaching the gospel afresh to God's people. And Paul moves on in verses 15 to 23 of the same chapter to talk about unity in the spirit of God. We've had unity in Christ. Now we've got unity in the spirit. And Paul continues in this prayer. He prays that God would give the spirit to open our eyes. But to open our eyes to what? I grew up in a church where the only function of the Holy Spirit that was ever talked about was to open our eyes to understand the Bible a little bit better. Don't get me wrong, this is a wonderful function of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who enables us to understand more of God, to lift our head, to see who God is, to hear God speaking to us through the words of Scripture. But actually here, Paul prays that God would give the Spirit to open our eyes to know hope and power. Paul describes the Holy Spirit as a deposit, which is one heck of a deposit, isn't it, when you think about it? When you think that a deposit is just a glimpse of the, the reward or the, the gift to come. It's imagining that somebody gave you a million pounds and then told you that that was just a little bit of what they were going to give you in the future. What an incredible choice of language. 
the, uh, the, the comfort of the Holy Spirit that we can know, the help of the Holy Spirit, the great helper that we can know in our lives, the power of the Holy Spirit that we can know working through us is just a deposit, a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance, meaning that we have even more to hope for than we could imagine. God chose us before creation. Christ died to make us right with God. And it is by the spirit that we cry, Abba, Father. Romans 8, 15 and Galatians 4, 6 is the reference there. But do you see how Paul is illustrating here by his mentions of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit that God as three in one is at work in our salvation? So the first thing that the spirit does for us as believers, as Paul illustrates here in Ephesians 1, is guarantees our inheritance. The second is that the spirit opens our eyes to the hope we have in Christ. And actually, that's a hope that we cannot fully realize without the spirit at work in us. This is why Paul prays for our eyes, the eyes of our hearts to be open. Do you want to be brimming over with hope and joy in the gospel well, ask God that his spirit would open the eyes of your heart. Paul goes on to talk about how the spirit is resurrection power to those who believe. The same power, he says, that raised Christ from the dead. I wonder if you believe in the power of the spirit to, for God to work miracles through you today. It's fascinating, isn't it? Because people believe different things about the way God works uh, in the miraculous through us today. And yet I heard a great quote the other day. I heard somebody say, if you believe that God raised Jesus from the dead, you already believe in a miracle. And here Paul says the same power that raised Christ from the dead is alive in us. The spirit of God also lifts our heads to see Christ as he is seated above all authority, power and dominion at the right hand of God, head over all things, including the church. Another way of putting that is that the spirit is the ultimate worship leader. If it is the job of a worship leader to lift our heads to see who God is and to worship him, well, that is what the Holy Spirit does in us. And we need the spirit in our churches, don't we, at all times. Without him at work within us and among us, we are blind, and dead and we will end up worshiping other things because it, is, because it is the spirit who lifts our heads and any church looking to the spirit to open the eyes of their hearts to the reality of, the reality of Jesus will breed unity within because the spirit unites us in the worship of God. Well we've already reached chapter two of Ephesians it's going to be a fairly swift uh, journey through the letter looking at all these topics that Paul uh, it would, it would be unfair to say he touches upon them because he definitely gives us a bit of detail, but he covers so many different things that we're really going to spend a bit of extra time on the things that are completely unique in Ephesians, which we'll get to in a little while. But here in the beginning of chapter two, Paul talks about how we are united, not only in Christ, not only in the spirit, but also in our state of having been dead and now being alive. Paul uses this language of death and life, which if you look throughout his letters is really common language. And usually he's not talking about kind of physical death and physically being alive. He's talking about spiritual death, the state of being without Christ and without the hope of eternal life. And eschatological or spiritual life 
eternal life, the hope we have in Christ. And here in verses 1 to 10 of chapter 2, Paul outlines the human condition in stark terms. And it's pretty simple. Without Christ, every one of us was dead in our transgressions, chasing things which may make us feel alive for a bit, but which never fully satisfy. We were cut off from Christ and spiritually dead. And Paul says that that way of life, that state is characterized by the works of the flesh. And that's important because in a moment he's going to say what new life is characterized by in our works. But now, Paul says, we are united in the life Christ has given us, no longer bound only to the works of the flesh, but freed to do the good works that Paul has prepared in advance, uh, Paul, that God has prepared in advance for us. No longer spiritually dead, but eternally alive. So that though our bodies may wither and fail, we will rise again with Christ in eternity. This, of course, is the centre of the hope of the gospel. And how, how has this been carried out? How does this work? Well, Paul says it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one may boast. Well, we won't go into too much depth here about the nature and order of salvation, because I know that you've already had a session on that when you looked at Romans. But there is one thing that Paul is emphasizing here in his outline of salvation, and that is that we are all in the same boat, dead without Christ, alive with Christ through faith in Christ. And in that there can be no competition, no one upmanship. No competing for who is the most righteous, no holier than thou attitudes and all those things which create division in the church, because all have fallen short of the glory of God. But every believer has been given a free gift of grace by God so that no one may boast. Well, moving on to the next section in uh, verses uh, in, in chapter two, verse 11 to chapter three, verse 21. Because although there's a lot contained here, it's all addressing the same theme, which is the unity between Jews and Gentiles in the church. Now, if you've read any of Paul's letters, you will know that this is absolutely central to Paul's gospel. In fact, when Paul uh, went back to Jerusalem for one of the Jerusalem conferences uh, and they talked about what it meant for Gentiles to be included in God's plan, actually, Paul was sent away as the apostle to the Gentiles. This is central for him to preach the good news of Jesus to those who are not ethnically Jewish. And in verse 11 of, uh, of chapter two, it looks like there might be some tension between circumcised and uncircumcised believers, otherwise known as Jews and Gentiles. Now, this doesn't indicate a specific setting for the letter. This was the case in most of the cities in the Mediterranean, including Ephesus, but most of them as well. You can see this in Acts, but actually most of these cities were predominantly Greeks with a handful of Romans and a, a sort of a substantial enough population of Jewish people that there would have been a couple of synagogues and there would have been some Jewish communities. But this tension within the church of those who are ethnically Jewish and believe in Christ and those who are not and believe in Christ actually would have come with all sorts of cultural differences and all sorts of uh, historical differences and all of these things. The Jewish believers would still be obeying the law or doing their best to 
And the Gentile believers would have never had to obey the law. So there'd be a lot of confusion. And what Paul addresses here is that before Jesus, the Jewish way of life, Judaism, was very exclusive. In fact, it was exclusively uh, religious. Uh, sorry, it was exclusive religiously. For example, the, the temple structure in Jerusalem only allowed certain types of people to come inside the various layers of the temple. And Gentiles weren't allowed in at all. It was exclusive culturally as well. Things like Jewish festivals and all of these other things were reserved for Jews only. And it was exclusive spiritually. And here's what Paul tackles head on. Jews laid claim to the hope that God was going to send a Messiah to redeem the world. But you could only access that hope if you were Jewish. Paul alludes to these exclusions in verse 12 when he says, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ. And he's speaking, of course, directly to Gentiles here. He says at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. So you were uh, um, religiously and spiritually and culturally excluded, but Paul goes on, now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now it makes sense that this comes near the center of the letter because this is the center of Paul's theology, that the gospel does not and cannot in its very nature discriminate down any cultural or ethnic lines and Paul uses a whole handful of metaphors to illustrate this and one of the big ones here is a dividing wall a dividing wall which has now been broken down now this is temple imagery the dividing wall being the exclusive Jewish law and this is a a wall which has now been broken down and the exclusive area that Gentiles couldn't enter is suddenly open it reminds you, doesn't it, of the tearing of the curtain in the Holy of Holies, which, of course, is about uh, God's presence being accessible for anyone who believes in Christ. Christ now being the, the method of us speaking to and relating to God instead of the high priest in the center of the temple. But this applies to Jews and Gentiles as well, who can now be united through their faith in Christ. Another metaphor which Paul uses is a body. This is Paul's typical metaphor for the church, which now includes Israelites who are Jews and Gentiles who believe in Christ. And finally, another metaphor that Paul uses a little bit more subtly in this passage is a battle because he talks about hostility, hostility between Jews and Gentiles because of the division and the exclusion between the two can now be put to rest because of the death of Christ, which brings peace. Speaking about the gift that God has given him to share the gospel, Paul says this mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. Well, this is good news for the church in Ephesus. And it's good news for anybody of us today who doesn't identify, who isn't, who isn't ethnically Jewish. Because God has included those who are not uh, descended from Jacob in his salvation plan. Paul ends this section, or what we see as chapter three. There were no chapters in the original letters, by the way. But at the end of chapter three, Paul ends this section with 
if I had to pick a favourite part of Ephesians, this would be up there. Because Paul just interrupts himself. He finishes this explanation of what the gospel is and what it means for Jews and Gentiles and the unity between the two groups. And then he just goes, and now I'm going to pray. And he goes into this incredible prayer of praise. I love how unashamed he is to interrupt himself with this. Have you ever been writing a letter or writing an email and just felt the need to pray in the middle of it? That's what happens. And Paul is good enough to include his prayer in the letter. He says, for this reason, as in because of the fact that God has included the Gentiles in his sovereign salvation plan. He says, for this reason, I kneel before the Father. And then Paul plays, uh, prays this incredible prayer, which focuses on God's immense power. And he uses three Greek words very close together. He uses dunamai, which means to have power. Dunamis, which means power, and energeo, which means to work powerfully. He focuses on the immense power of the God who is bringing uh, different groups together for the sake of his glory in his church. And then Paul ends this section of the letter in a similar way to how he started, asking God to bestow power upon believers by his spirit. And this shows us that Paul is concluding this half of the letter. He says, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. And whenever I read that, I just want to join Paul in saying, amen. It's incredible that Paul can just interrupt himself in prayer in the middle of a letter. And it just illustrates his own complete joy at the gospel and what it is achieving in the church. Well, it's time for us to have a discussion in breakout rooms. And um, so I'm going to give you a question. And that question is this. According to the first three chapters of Ephesians, what do you see as Paul's vision for the church? So bear in mind that this letter is probably going to several different congregations, and it's illustrating what Paul believes God is doing in the church. I'll ask that question one more time. According to the first three chapters of Ephesians, what is Paul's vision for the church? I'll let you discuss that for 10 minutes in breakout rooms. Then we'll come back and have a little bit of feedback. Okay, um, I'd love to hear, I'd love to hear about some of the stuff you came up with uh, in your breakout rooms uh, about Paul's vision for the church. So um, I didn't tell you to do this to kind of choose a spokesperson, but just by all means, just jump jump in would anybody be up for sharing what their group um what their group talked about and came up with yeah i can share uh, to me it felt we just got started and then it was already 10 minutes <laughs> uh, it was great um I, I think we we had we had several ideas one is um is that that we understand each other if uh, if the holy spirit helps us to understand each other that ultimately brings that about um and 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 that is a catalyst for for unity um also also we we kind of we kind of shared a bit about our experience in in different churches and how there's like authority structures and we 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 don't always like everything the authority structures say but um and and then and then um what we're what we're looking for is when jesus uh, it says in in, in 123, everything is placed under um, the authority of Jesus. And, and once that happens, then um, 
the unity is brought about. That's that's uh, the short uh, short version. Yeah, it's great. Thank you. Well, um, we'll give you a little longer in in groups next time. Uh, it's good to hear that you had more to talk about than you could fit. Uh, yeah, it's, I, I like I like the focus on the spirit and I um, also the um, yeah the idea that unity is something we may always strive for but may never reach until Jesus returns. And actually, I think we're gonna it, it'll be similar with maturity when we talk about that later on. So. Um, that's great. Thanks, Will. Um, anyone else? What What's Paul's um, uh, vision for the church? We spoke a lot about um, how it unites people groups, like what you were saying about the Ephesians and the uh, Gentiles and how, um, you know, it's actually a really beautiful thing that no one can boast about, you know, the salvation that's been, been given to us. And that's really... Um, applicable I guess to uh churches now when like um you know we're sharing the gospel with with our friends or like new people are joining or whatever you know this is this is a, a gospel message for everyone it doesn't matter who you are or uh where you're from everyone you know um is welcome in in the family and um yeah through the grace that we've been shown like we're all united and have been I guess treated the same by by Jesus. We're all on that like level playing field, as you were saying. Yeah, awesome. Thanks, Anna. It's great. Yeah, I love the um. Remind just reminds me of the the verse from that um that song. I will I will not boast in anything. No gifts. No power. No wisdom. But I will boast in Jesus Christ, my death and resurrection. I love the the focus on no one may boast, but actually to say Jesus is great is the only boast that we that we can do. Um, and it's a uniting boast isn't it i had to double take there anna for about a minute i was like where's that voice coming from where's the voice coming from there's a voice is this <laughs> so yeah it took a while to figure out where it was coming from but yeah thanks anna and andy kind of responds to the theology stuff and i just respond to the the random stuff I think that's <laughs> really it's, that's the way it rolls with us sorry All right um, maybe maybe one more person want to share what their group spoke about and then we'll, we'll move on um, in our group, uh, it was um, looking through from one to three, it's about the, the, our focus being on Christ and um, throughout, even with the prayers and everything that Paul prayed that our eyes would be enlightened, you know, to what Christ has done for us. And also that being united in Christ is not an exclusive, it's not an exclusive club, but it's very inclusive and, and, and open. So when we're sharing with others, um, it's, it's the, the point of sharing with others is bringing them to that unity in, in Christ and opening their eyes to see what, you know, God has really, what Jesus did for us. So because then even with all the prayers throughout that Paul is praying, is that our eyes will be enlightened, that we will see, you know, what God, what Jesus did for us and the power that we have is the same that raised him from the dead. So it's just all that focus being on Jesus. Mm. Yeah, thanks so much, Christiana. That's that's brilliant. Yeah, it, it's, it's incredible. I think it sounds like one of the things you were saying is that um, one of the things that the spirit opens our eyes to, or the eyes of our hearts, is that this isn't about, um, keeping people out but bringing people in and um, and I think that's that's brilliant um, and that's definitely what Paul is 
thinking about with regards to Gentiles, but of course for us, it can mean all sorts of different things um, into the unity of Christ. Fantastic. Well, I'd love to hear more, but we'd we'd better move on. We'll have a break in a few minutes, but since we've we've made good time actually so far, I just want to spend a, a minute or two talking about uh, one aspect of Ephesians as a whole and one aspect of Paul's life, um, and that is imprisonment. Um, and then we'll we'll have a break, and then we'll talk about the second half of the letter. Um, but actually imprisonment's important because Paul wrote several letters from some kind of situation of of imprisonment and I use that word even though it's longer than prison and because Roman imprisonment was a really complicated thing and when Paul says I am in chains or I am a prisoner it actually could mean a whole host of different things and understanding a little bit of that helps us to understand a bit of what Paul uh, is going through. In verse one of chapter three, he says, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. And in chapter four, verse one, Paul says, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. That's just really interesting, the way Paul uses his imprisonment as, a, as an authority marker. Because this is completely and utterly countercultural. because prison or imprisonment in the Roman Empire brought shame. That was the general uh, sort of societal impact of imprisonment, is that you were put to shame by the fact that you didn't have your freedom anymore. Usually people would lose uh, their wealth and their finances if they were imprisoned, uh, because they'd have to use all their money on legal fees, or it'd just be taken away. Uh, they'd lose relationships, they'd lose friends. It was not a good position to be in. And yet the way Paul talks about it is always turning that on its head. In chapter four, verse one, when he says, as a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you, he's saying, look, I'm suffering for the gospel. And on that basis, I want to urge you to give all you have for the gospel. It's incredible. Um, and Paul says, and the way he describes himself is important as well. He doesn't say I'm a prisoner of Rome or I'm a prisoner of the authorities in Ephesus, uh, I'm a prisoner of whoever, I'm a prisoner of Felix, you know, if he was in uh, Caesarea, or I'm a prisoner of, of whoever, he says, I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus. He will not allow himself to be subjugated to anybody else. He is a prisoner of Christ. And I just think that's fascinating. With regards to the type of prison or uh, imprisonment Paul could be enduring well it could be anything really from the worst of the worst kind of the innermost cell of a dedicated prison building which is called a desmoterion in Greek and that's what happens to Paul in Philippians so the innermost darkest uh, crowded smelly part of the center of a prison or it could be the opposite end of the spectrum house arrest in Rome as we see right at the end of the book of Acts or it could be anything in between he could be held in a guard house, uh, guarded by soldiers. He could be chained to a soldier or two. Uh, he could be held in a governor's residence, which is what happens at Caesarea. There's no way of knowing from the text alone, although the character of Ephesians suggests that actually this is probably towards the end of Paul's uh, ministry. And so I, I would say this is probably written from his Roman imprisonment. But people can disagree on that, and that's okay. But actually what really matters is that Paul is subverting what imprisonment means in the Roman Empire. And he's saying, actually, this is something that um, it gives me authority to call you to live your lives for the gospel as well. Paul is not ashamed of being a prisoner. 
I just wanted to mention that because when we're reading one of Paul's imprisonment letters, which uh, is Ephesians and Philemon and Philippians and Colossians, um, and also two Timothys written from an imprisonment as well, uh, it's important to remember the situation from which Paul is writing. You know, uh, there's a point in one of the letters where Paul says, look how large the letters are I write with my own hand. And it might be because his hands are in chains. These things are worth remembering uh, as Paul is writing. He's not in a triumphant position, sitting in a palace, the guest of a king. No, he's imprisoned. Anyway, I just wanted to mention that before we move on to the uh, second half of the letter. But before we do that, this seems like a good point for a break. So please do top up your uh, tea and coffee supplies and, and we'll come together in as many minutes as Andy B tells us. So hi, everyone. I uh, hope you are um, sufficiently full of tea and coffee now. Um, so Andy's just screen sharing an image which I, I was going to share earlier, which is just it's an image of um, actually a modern day part of Ephesus. So uh, Ephesus is in modern day Turkey. It was in the province of Asia Minor, the Roman Empire. Um, and this is a, an uncovered um, theatre, gigantic theatre, um, which has been uncovered through kind of excavations and archaeology. Um, and it's just, it's incredible. If you read the account in the, um, in the Book of Acts, you'll see that this theatre is, or a big theatre in Ephesus is mentioned. Um, and actually, this is probably the one. So it's just, it's incredible for us to get a glimpse of Paul's Ephesus. Um, I just I would love to go and visit all of these places one day, but um, someone's going to need to pay for that. So we'll see. We'll see whether one day somebody will pay me to go and do a research trip of some kind. But thanks for that, Andy. Um, do, we, do we know like how much that seated? I mean, that theatre, that looks like a modern day football stadium in terms of like size. I mean, that is. Yeah, I don't know, but I'm sure you can find out. And I did, I mean, I'm, 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 I'm wasting your time here a little bit, Andy, but I did hear something, I don't know if you know about this, that the way the theatre is, is shaped in terms of like sound, that actually, you don't actually need a microphone and you can project and it, you can hear through most of the theatre, just the way it's like, yeah. I don't know, is that? No, that's correct. Yeah, that's correct. It's an amazing uh, feat of kind of acoustic engineering. It's just, it's amazing the way how thought out. We owe so much in terms of our architecture and all of those things to the Greeks and Romans. Wow. Who needs microphones when you have, yeah, that kind of architecture. Anyway, I'm going to be quiet. I'm, I'm gone. I'll let Andy actually impart some useful stuff, right? O optional architecture with Andy Brownlee um, <laughs> after this. So. Uh, great. Okay. Um, Right, I'm, I'm back. Um, so before we, before we dive into the second half of Ephesians, which we'll, we'll move through at a good pace so that we don't eat too much into our uh, time to talk about the church. Um, the, we're we're going to think now about the theme of maturity, which is really, really key in the second half of Ephesians. Um, it's, it's not the only thing Paul talks about in the same way that unity isn't the only thing Paul talks about in the first half of the letter. But it's a key theme running through the whole thing. Uh, now the church has existed for several years. Uh, people have been believers for a little while. And um, there's a mixed group in the church, probably, of new believers and believers who've been believers for, I don't know, a decade or however long the church has been there. What does it look like to be on a journey towards maturity as a believer in Jesus? That's something Paul uh, is really interested in, both kind of collectively as the church community and individually. 
And so we're going to think about that uh, going on. But first, we're going to do the same things we did before. In the chat, why don't you answer this question and we'll try and get as many thoughts as we can on this. What does the idea of Christian maturity mean to you? What does Christian maturity mean to you? I'll give you a moment to answer that question. Living like Jesus. Great. Yeah, behave in a way Jesus will. I see a, I see a theme emerging here. Following Jesus' teaching. More of Jesus, less of me. Being closer to God, seeking God's wisdom in all decisions. Yeah, these things are great. I think, um, once again, yeah, please keep answering. Letting go of your own plans and letting God guide you fully. Listening to the Holy Spirit before speaking or acting in haste. Oh, I love all of this. And um, it's again, it's a question that can't be answered in one sentence. It's a question Paul doesn't answer in one sentence, which is really helpful. So, uh, yeah, Anna's drawn attention to the idea of time. So walking with God for time and growing in maturity over time. I think time is definitely a factor. If you talked about maturity in any other context, whether it be just maturity generally in your character, then time would be a factor. If you talked about the maturity of a cheese or a wine, once again, time would be a factor and um, but actually Paul is gearing up at the beginning of chapter four to talk about maturity and the kind of behavior and attitudes expected of believers in Christ this is why he says as a prisoner for the Lord then that is somebody who's suffering for the gospel has a lot of authority I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling he literally says in, in the Greek a, a, of the calling to which you were called really quite emphasized that the life that Paul is calling you to live is the one that God has called you to. What is this calling? Well, it's the basic calling of the gospel to live for Jesus, to live as Jesus did and to follow the teaching of Jesus, as we've already mentioned. But it's not quite as simple as Paul talking about unity in the first part of the letter and maturity in the second. The second half is a little bit more, the second half of Ephesians is a little bit more like unity in maturity. So the whole letter is really about how to model a church community which glorifies God. And I think we've been uh, seeing that emerge as we've looked through it. And a church that glorifies God, as we see in these amazing statements, all of which begin with there is one in chapter four, a church that glorifies God, which is united and maturing, is united over the central truths of the gospel. There is one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. You know, we talked about earlier how in the cities of the Roman Empire, uh, pretty much all of them would have had a substantial enough Jewish population, but mostly a Gentile population. The same is true that the majority of these cities would have a predominant culture of worshipping lots of different gods. So pluralistic worship of either Greek or Roman or a combination of the two gods. And what was a tendency in some of these areas, and again, you see this emerge a little bit in some of the um, stories in Acts of, of Paul's missionary journeys, sometimes um, people in these cities would be happy to incorporate God or incorporate Jesus as one of the gods that they would pay worship to. And what Paul's trying to do here is tackle that and say, no, 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 there is one God. 
and there is one community of his worshippers and uh, those people are one body and they are united by one spirit you are called to one hope uh, to worship one lord or, or the greek word for lord also means master uh, united in one faith and incorporated through one baptism one god and father of all who is over all and through all and in all if you wanted to boil down paul's message against pluralistic worship and towards monotheistic worship of the one god this would be where you would go paul goes on uh, to talk about uh, some of the differences that you find in the church and i think that's why paul roots it all in oneness you know we are all one but then he goes on to discuss some of the differences that we'll find in our church communities. As he unpacks in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 and Romans 12 in a bit more detail, Paul says here quite briefly in Ephesians 4 that God gives different gifts to different people in the church to build up the church. Now we all know this, don't we? If we've been part of a church for some time, we know that people have different skills and different things that we might call spiritual gifts. Some people might be really gifted uh, in uh, preaching, for example, and teaching. Some people might be really gifted evangelists. Some people might have a gift for prophecy of sharing what God is saying with the church and its members. Actually, uh, there are all sorts of gifts. Someone might have a real gift for hospitality one, and someone else might have a real gift for kindness or showing mercy. These are gifts that are brought to the fore in Romans 12, particularly. But every one of these gifts, Paul says, is an undeserved gift of grace. In Greek, a gift is called a charis or a charisma, okay, which is where we get our word charismatic. And Paul mentions here in Ephesians five particular types of gifted people. People who are actually really important for a church to thrive. So these are apostles who are gifted at carrying vision, taking the gospel to new places. Of course, there are different interpretations of what these words mean exactly. I'm just giving you one. Prophets gifted in hearing from God and sharing his message with the church. Evangelists gifted particularly at sharing the gospel with unbelievers. Pastors, and the Greek word for that is literally shepherds, gifted at compassionately caring for the flock. And teachers gifted at stewarding God's word and teaching the church accordingly. And the purpose of these gifts as is the purpose of any gift from God to his people, is to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. And actually, I think the reason that Paul is talking about this and, and he spends so much time across his letters discussing the gifts of the Spirit is that they can easily be a point that leads to division in the church or jealousy or comparison, all of which are divisive, which are the enemy of unity. And Paul is saying that actually accepting the fact that God gives different gifts to different members of his church without favoritism and for the sake of the church's growth as a whole is a sign of maturity in the church. I think of when I was a, a child and if my brother was given a gift that I didn't get, I would be very jealous. I'd say things like, it's not fair or why can't I have one of those? And sometimes I think we can, and, and I speak from personal experience, we can act in a similar way with gifted people in the church. Maybe we don't articulate it, but maybe we think to ourselves, man, I wish I had that gift. I wish I was like that person. It's a bit unfair that they've been given that gift and they're really good at that and I'm not. 
But actually, Paul calls us here to thank God for the gifts he has given to the church as a whole, for the sake of the church, and ultimately for his glory. And unity and maturity are the goal once again. In verse 13, Paul says, we need to think about these things and celebrate the fact that God is doing this in the church until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. You see, this um, signifies a, a point in the future, and every one of us would be lying if we said the church has reached this point already, this point of unity and maturity. This day that we long for when God unites all things under heaven and earth and when the church reaches its full uh, potential, its full purpose as the bride of Christ. Actually, um, it's the reason that I chose these two themes as unity of unity and maturity is because I see them in particularly in the first and second halves of Ephesians, respectively. But it's also because right here in the middle, these two themes converge completely. They smash into one another. As Paul says, this is what the church is going for. Unity and maturity until we become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And then we spoke a little bit earlier about you all shared your thoughts on what maturity means to you. But here Paul gives us a definition in verses 14 to 16. He says, then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people speaking of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head. That is Christ. From him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. I don't know if you have been swimming in the sea recently, if you have, you're brave because it's cold, but as a general rule, you should only swim in the sea when it's relatively calm. Otherwise you risk being dragged under the crashing waves and pulled away by the currents. Interestingly, Paul had endured shipwrecks, including at least one time where he was stranded in the sea, clinging to a piece of wreckage for 24 hours. I wonder if he had that in mind when he said that when we reach maturity, we will no longer be tossed back and forth by the waves. He's talking about remaining steadfast in the challenges of life, but remaining steadfast in the face of contrary beliefs and teaching to the gospel. He's talking about being steadfast in the gospel. That's the kind of maturity Paul is referring to here. But of course, in order to strive towards this kind of maturity, where we are no longer blown this way and that by the different things we hear, by the different things that influence us, well, we need Christ, our head, and we need one another, and we need to work together. And that's why Paul describes the body as uh, every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. The body of Christ with Christ at its head, working together, striving towards maturity. That's Paul's vision for the church. And standard practice for Paul, as, as we move on into chapter four, uh, the second half of chapter four and the first half of chapter five, standard practice for Paul in a lot of his letters is to have kind of a gospel presentation in the first half and then an explanation of how this impacts our daily lives in the second Sometimes people call that the ethical section. This is true of 
1 Thessalonians, Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians and Philippians. Kind of here's the gospel and here's how you should act in response. But here it's all tied up in this idea of becoming mature. In chapter 4 verses 17 to 32, Paul speaks about the kind of behaviours that he wants us to distance ourselves from. When he mentions Gentiles in this context, he says no longer live as the Gentiles do. He clearly means unbelieving Gentiles, people who have not yet come to faith in Christ. And Paul describes that kind of behaviour as ignorant. So I think it's really interesting. It's both, it's a harsh word to describe the kind of behaviour that we exhibit when we aren't following Christ, but it's also understanding because it shows that they just don't understand what they're doing. It reminds me of what Christ said on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. But Paul encourages believers, many of whom, of course, are Gentiles, to uh, put off the old self and put on the new self. Even though we've been made alive in Christ, Paul is identifying here, we can't be passive about that. You know, I've, I've been made alive in Christ and that's great. Now I'll just get on with my life as normal. But actually, when we do that, we end up slipping back into our old way of life. Or we begin to follow and be influenced by the culture around us more than by the truths of scripture. Actually, Paul is encouraging us to actively clothe ourselves with the new self that Christ has given us. We're instructed to flee from behaviours and attitudes like bitterness, rage, anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Rather, we should be kind and forgiving to one another following Christ's example. Now, we know it kind of goes without saying that we're to avoid these things that cause bitterness and division within the church and pursue that which brings unity. The whole point, of course, being to glorify Christ. It's worth mentioning, and the same can be said of the works of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit in Galatians 5, which is a similar passage. Paul is leaning towards behaviour, which brings the church together in worship. At the beginning of chapter 5, he goes on uh, in what can seem a little bit like a strange turn, but he talks specifically about sexual immorality, greed and idolatry. But actually, when we think about where this letter was going to, Ephesus and similar cities in the empire. And when we think about the fact that in verses one and two, Paul has said this, follow God's example and live a life of love. Well, we know that actually it would be easy for that to be misinterpreted. You know, what Paul does in the next few verses, he says, but among you, there must not be any hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or of greed. And the reason is that Paul's trying to say, look, love isn't the same as lust. Love isn't outworked in the kind of lustful parties and uh, all these things that would be going on in these uh, cities of the Roman Empire. Ephesus is a fantastic example because the cult of Artemis was a very sexual cult. There would have been statues and shrines everywhere, and the wealthy would have had shrines of their own, which means that there was plenty of greed and idolatry as well. This was true of most of the major cities of the empire. But what we have to remember is that the moment they walked out of their front doors, Christians living in these cities would have to confront all of these temptations. Their families might still be worshipping in the ways of the cult of Artemis or something like that. And they're having to confront these things every single day. But in chapter 5, verses 8 to 14, Paul reminds us again, a little bit like the old self, new self comparison. 
that we have this wonderful new identity in Christ. And I saw a comment just a moment ago in the chat that got slightly ahead of me and targeted this head on and said the new identity we have in Christ is where our actions have to flow from. He says we are children of light who get to work out what the Lord's will is and act accordingly, who don't need to tangle with things like uh, drunkenness, for example, which is the example Paul uses, because we can be filled with the spirit instead. Isn't that incredible that all of this stuff flows from the new identity that God has clothed us with as children of God? We get to wear the righteousness of Christ. It reminds me of the true vine discussion that Jesus has with his uh, disciples. And he talks about uh, being rooted in the true vine and from there, goodness flows. Uh, from there, life comes. And actually, that's what Paul is saying as well. We have a new identity in Christ. And when we know that, our actions flow from it. Well, we'll move on to uh, a pretty well-known part of Ephesians, starting in chapter 21. Uh, it's a part of a letter that sometimes people refer to as the household code, but it's so much more than that. As we'll see, from, as we'll see later on when we talk about the church, uh, actually some of the central kind of doctrine of the church and what Paul believes the church to be is contained in this section. But it's also a vision for how every household relationship represented in the church can emulate the relationship between the church and Christ. And spoiler alert, it involves humility and submission. Average house churches in a city like Ephesus would have been made up of a few extended families and a handful of other people. But there would be husbands and wives, parents and children, and definitely, and the more so, the bigger the city was, masters and slaves. Maybe I shouldn't say extended families, but extended households. Anybody wealthy enough to have a home big enough for a church to meet in probably had slaves in their employ as well. This is just the culture of the empire. With every person, regardless of age, gender, race and social status being equal in Christ, according to Paul's gospel, Think of the big statements in uh, letters like Galatians, for example, there is no longer male or female or slave or free, but we are all one in Christ Jesus. With all of that being true, Paul had to give some clear instructions on how these relationships, which carried a lot of social and cultural expectations, could still work. And instead of simply giving a list of rules, which is how this section can often be viewed, Paul explains that every person no matter their position in society, has an opportunity to be Christ-like in their relationships. He says, are you a husband? Well, then you can honour God by laying down your life for your wife in love, putting her before yourself. Are you a wife? You can honour God by submitting to your husband in love, putting him before yourself. And whatever you believe about this passage and the way it's describing the husband-wife relationship, it's clear that a great deal is expected of both partners. Both are required to be humble and relentlessly loving, and marriage isn't something which should be entered into lightly. Paul goes on, are you a child? Well, you can honour God by doing as your parents ask you to in love and respect. Are you a parent? You can honour God by treating your children with compassion and care in love. Are you a slave? You can honour God by obeying your master as if you were obeying God himself, knowing that God sees your hard work and will not fail to reward you. 
Are you a master? Treat your slave with compassion and gentleness, knowing that God does not view you and them any differently from one another. Now note on these social relationships, of course, great difficulties arise when we read some of these, this language. We have to read this within its context. For good reason, it's difficult for us to hear slaves mentioned in the Bible, and particularly not to hear Paul protest against the institution of slavery. It's not a rabbit hole that we're going to go down right now. But it's worth mentioning that in Paul's world, slavery was interwoven into the fabric of society so tightly that the institution of Roman slavery wouldn't crumble until the Roman Empire crumbled. Paul's commands to masters to treat their slaves with compassion and without threat was actually incredibly countercultural and a big ask. Now, I do want to just move on to the final parts of the letter, just so that we can get through Ephesians in the time that we have left. So do forgive me if we have somewhat whizzed through the second half of Ephesians. But I wanted to ensure, actually, that we made it to this final point, to the armour of God. This is a unique part of the Pauline epistles, mentioned briefly in passing in the other letters, but never outlined in such beautiful detail as this. What Paul does here in the armour of God is he outlines the tools available to the Christian in the battle against the enemy, the devil, Satan, the evil one. Whatever you want to call him, the truth is that there is a real enemy. Jesus has defeated him at the cross, but he is continuing to fight a losing battle to the death. And a defeated enemy often fights harder because they have nothing to lose. Thankfully, the Christian has little to fear. The battle is won. The Lion of Judah fights for us. And as Paul outlines here in chapter 6, verses 10 to 20 of Ephesians, we are equipped with armour for our protection and weapons to fight back. Now, uh, what I want to do is encourage you to have a little look at the two uh, tables that I've included in the handout. One of them is... Um, a table showing the various parts of the armour of God that Paul describes in Ephesians chapter 6. Uh, and the other is a little um, overview of all of the different times in Ephesians that we haven't mentioned yet, where Paul has mentioned evil forces uh, that are working against believers. And all of these things can be clubbed under the, the uh, I don't know, the, uh, the power of, of Satan or the enemy, however you want to do it. But Paul has been hinting all the way through that there is a spiritual battle going on. And this is why he ends Ephesians in this way, saying, and here are all of the ways God has allowed you to protect yourself in this battle. And finally, to fight back. One of the uh, things that we can often overlook about the armour of God is that right at the end, we have the sword of the spirit and we have prayer. We are not only to uh, protect ourselves and, and um, let the fiery arrows of the evil one bounce off our armor and our shield, but actually God calls us to fight back as well through prayer and through the resisting of temptations of the enemy. I've given you a quote in the, um, in the handout from Matthew Henry as well, simply because I was reading his commentary on the entire Bible and the way he spoke about the individual components of the armour of truth was incredible. I loved it. I encourage you to read that in your own time. But we're going to finish uh, our, um, our section on Ephesians with a little discussion in breakout rooms. We'll give you, uh, we'll give you 10 minutes for that again, um, just because I don't want us to, to have no time left to, to talk about church. Um, but I've got one more question for you to think about. 
uh, in breakout rooms with which relates to the armor of God and let me just find it. Okay, here's a question. In your understanding, what are we fighting against in the spiritual battle and how does God equip us for the battle? I encourage you to think about particularly the armor of God, but maybe about more generally uh, how the Bible speaks about evil and the power of God and the power God gives us to battle against evil. What are we fighting against and how does God equip us for the battle? Why don't you discuss this in breakout rooms? Great to see you all again. Um, I wonder if we can just get a little bit of feedback on that question uh, on the spiritual battle. Um, what are we fighting against and how does God equip us? Um, and then after we've, we've chatted about this for a few minutes, we'll have our second break and, and then we'll spend the rest of the session on the church. So um, what, did your, what did your groups talk about? Just jump right in. Um, we spoke about like there's some real obvious things that you fight against not obvious but like temptations that are fairly like you can recognize them and you know that that was wrong or like oh I shouldn't do that but actually maybe more um, worrying um, are just like the small thoughts that you have that you don't recognize as sin or temptation Um, just like the temptation to think oh I didn't get that job because God doesn't care about me or, or um, I've got this illness because I've done something wrong or I'm not good enough and that sort of thing and those thoughts that just creep in and you don't even realize that you're thinking them sometimes um and he equips us with um his word um the truth to kind of combat those thoughts and also just like a, a church community um of people who you can chat those things through with um and he can speak the truth and, and pray with you about it oh that's great thank you yeah, that's awesome. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm with you on that. That's fantastic. It, it's like there's a there's a, a temptation battle, but there's a, a mind battle as well, isn't there? And that's Paul talks about that, you know, doesn't he in the Corinthian letters about taking captive every thought and how that's a big part of what it means to to live as a, as a Christian and challenge the thoughts we have. That's that's great. Thanks so much for sharing. Um, anybody else? We, we talked about um, oh, all sorts of things. <laughs> But, but for, for instance, and, and like Katie was just saying there, it, you, you know, they're almost insidious, aren't they? they? They sort of creep in by stealth. And you can go to church on a Sunday and, you, you know, I, I hear people um, say, oh, I didn't get much out of that this morning. Oh, oh, those songs were awful. They didn't do anything for me at all. And we, and we forget that actually we're there to worship God. God, God loves that worship. And it's, and it's about God. It's not about us. And just, just as our breakout room began, my phone rang and, I, and because of who was calling me, I had to answer it. And, and it's just, you know, it's another, um, it cre it's just creeping in. It, it's awful, <laughs> but that, that's how it works. Yeah, thanks so much. It's, um, it's great to hear you kind of talk about the, the everyday, the everyday nature of this battle that's going on. I think sometimes we can over over spiritualize this idea of the spiritual battle and think you know Paul's talking about times where we need to gather in groups of hundreds and all pray at the same time it's not that that stuff's wrong it's great but actually spiritual warfare and the spiritual battle is a much more present everyday thing which is is present every day but which God equips us for every day as well and so there's this continuous uh, command from Paul to continuously put on the armor of God uh, thanks Carol that's that's great and maybe one more person 
That is absolutely fine. We'll um, what we'll do is we'll take our second break there. Um, we'll just have we'll have ten minutes this time. Um, come back together at ten past eleven, uh, and then we'll 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 do the the, se the session on the church the whole way through.